Good morning, and welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, for people of all faiths, and for people of no faith. We have been studying the epistle of James. James was the first Christian bishop of the city of Jerusalem. And it's a very practical epistle. We're in the fourth chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. At one stage he attacks his congregation verbally and says, You are as unfaithful as adulterous wives. Don't you realize that making the world your friend is making God your enemy? Anyone who chooses the world for his friend turns himself into God's enemy. Now, isn't that a very uh, interesting passage there? Anyone who chooses the world for his friend turns himself into God's enemy. Don't you realize, he says, that making the world your friend is making God your enemy? There was a Protestant theologian who wrote a book called The Secular City. His name was Harvey Cox. Now, what in the name of God is the world coming to? Here we have a Catholic priest quoting a Protestant theologian. But anyway, Harvey Cox in his book, The Secular City, says, we have inherited a perverted form of Christianity, deodorized and without smell. Isn't that an interesting statement? We have inherited a perverted form of Christianity, deodorized and without smell. We've cleaned the whole thing up and it's probably radically different now from the Christianity that was preached by Jesus and lived by the first Christians. Like this statement from James is an example of it. He said, don't you realize that making the world your friend is making God your enemy? Anyone who chooses the world for his friend turns himself into God's enemy. Let's give an example of this. There's a rather wonderful man named Jean Vanier, uh, the founder of Larch. It's, he, um, he lives in community with a number of retarded citizens, and he has set up houses around the world where people like himself live in community with the retarded. The retarded are God's messengers, they're God's ambassadors, because we're all retarded in one way or another. But Vanier gives an interesting example of how Christians are more worldly than they should be. He describes a Catholic family baptized into Christ Jesus, a, ca a family that goes to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. They say their prayers. They say grace before meals. However, their neighbors next door um, are like themselves in a sense. They are um, middle-class people. Uh, they are from Canada. And these two families get along very well. The Canadian family happens to be modern-day pagans and the other family would call themselves Catholic. Now, because of this um, one family being Catholic and the other being pagan, the Catholic family um, doesn't talk about their religion at all. Like, these two families socialize a great deal, but when they're together, the uh, Catholic family never says the prayer of blessing before their meals, and they don't talk about God, and they don't talk about 
what goes on at the church or the sermons they heard or about reading the Bible. But these two families, they eat together, they go to movies together occasionally, uh, the husbands and wives play golf together, they play cards together, and so they have an awful lot in common, but it's all worldly stuff. Now, as Providence would have it, the Canadian family left that area and went back to Canada on a rather permanent basis. A new family uh, moved in next door. Now, interesting enough, this new family was Catholic as well. They had been baptized into Christ Jesus. Um, they went to Mass uh, every Sunday. They went to the sacraments. They received absolution when they confessed their sins. They uh, fed the poor. They said prayers before Mass. But over a three-year period, these two families never, ever, ever spoke to one another. Uh, they could see one another um, occasionally at the same Mass. Now, the new family made some attempts to speak to the first family that had been there for several, several years. And you're wondering what's going on here, aren't you? Well, the truth is that this second family were black Catholics from Africa. Now, it raises a very real question here. The typical middle-class white family had more in common with their pagan friends from Canada than they did with people of the same faith, which raises a very real question in my mind. I would say that um, this Catholic family that had nothing to do with the black family wasn't Catholic at all. They were false Christians. They had the veneer of religion. They had much more in common with the world. And it's to, it is to people such as this that uh, James says, don't you realize that making the world your friend is making God your enemy? Anyone who chooses the world for his friend turns himself into God's enemy. Now, Jesus talked about this in a radically different way. He uses, typical of Jesus, a parable to express it. Uh, Jesus said, and this is in Matthew uh, chapter 13, I believe. Let me turn. Yes, chapter 13, and it's verse 24 to 30. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was asleep, his enemy came, sowed weeds all among the wheat, and made off. When the new wheat sprouted and ripened, the weeds appeared as well. The owner's servants went to him and said, Sir, was it not good seed that you sowed in your field? If so, where do the weeds come from? Some enemy has done this, he answered. And the servant said, Do you want us to go and weed it out? But he said, No because when you weed out the weeds, you may pull up the wheat with it. Let them both grow till the harvest. At the harvest time, I shall say to the reapers, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burnt, then gather the wheat into my barn. In this particular image, uh, Jesus would be saying to us that the world is a bit like your front lawn. There's weeds and grass in the same lawn, and their weeds are, their roots are intertwined. And if the grass represents the kingdom of God, 
and the weeds represent the kingdom of darkness. They're side by side, um, but they cannot be friends. And yet in the image I just shared with you, the so-called Catholic family was friends with the pagan family from Canada and didn't open their minds and hearts and lives to the black Catholic family from Africa. So in actual fact, even though they had the appearances of religion about them, well, they just were false. You see what Harvey Cox meant when he said at the beginning of this broadcast, we have inherited a perverted form of Christianity, deodorized and without smell. Watch Jesus himself explaining the parable of the weeds among the wheat. Then leaving the crowds, he went to the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain the parable about the weeds in the field to us. He said in reply, the sower of the good seed is Jesus, the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the subjects of the kingdom. The weeds, the subjects of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them, the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. Well then, just as the weeds are gathered up and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of time. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that provoke offences and all who do evil, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Then the virtuous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Listen, anyone who has ears to hear. So the whole world then is compared to weeds and wheat and there will be a final harvest and a final separation with the weeds being burnt and the wheat gathered into the barns of God. Again, this should give you no particular joy uh, because the weeds represent people and how can you be happy with God for all eternity knowing that people are using an image burning in hell. It was former President uh, Mr. Ronald Reagan who gave me an insight into this particular passage some years ago. Uh, if you remember, he had made a comment publicly about the Soviet Union, Russia, and he referred to it as an evil empire. Now, let's get real here. Uh, we cannot denounce a whole people as being evil. If somebody said of the United States, we are an evil empire, what would you have to say about that? So the truth of the matter is there are two Americas, there are two Russias, there are two New Yorks. Uh, this town we live in right now that I live in, Ocala, there's two Ocalas. You see, there is that America which is one nation under God. These would be people who are struggling, who are sinners, but are struggling to follow and to live by the commandments or by the moral law that is written in their hearts. This is often called the natural law. And then there's that other group of people, the America that's one nation under Satan. And in many ways, these are people who say to God, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not God's will. And they're selfish and they're in it for themselves. A great um, parable from the Hebrew scriptures highlights this in a very interesting way. The famous story 
of the Tower of Babylon. This is Genesis chapter 11. Throughout the earth men spoke the same language with the same vocabulary. Now as they moved eastwards, they found a plain in the land of Shinar where they settled. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them in the fire. For stone they used bricks and for mortar they used bitumen. Come, they said, let us build ourselves a town and a tower with its top reaching heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves so that we may not be scattered above, about the whole earth. Now, what's wrong with building a tower with its top to the heavens? We've done it ourselves. We've built the Empire State Building, and I'm sure there are many other buildings around the world that are almost as high or perhaps even higher. There's nothing wrong with building a tower into the heavens. But if you look at the text here, the real sin was not building the tower. The men um, who built the Tower of Babylon said, let us make a name for ourselves, let us glorify ourselves. So they were forgetting that it is the duty of man to say, hallowed be thy name, may God's name be held holy, because we are his creatures. And we're here on earth to know, love, and serve God and to be happy with him forever in the next world. So the Lord God came down to see the town and the tower that the sons of men had built. So they all are a single people with a single language, says the Lord. This is but the start of their undertakings. There will be nothing too hard for them to do. Come, let us go down and confuse their language on the spot so that they can no longer understand one another. God scattered them thence over the whole face of the earth, and they stopped building the town. It was named Babel, therefore, because there the Lord God confused the language of the whole earth. It was from there that God scattered them over the whole face of the earth. So the Tower of Babel, uh, think of the word Babel, 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 Babel. Uh, I sometimes think that these nuclear uh, warheads that we build are the Tower of Babel. I think the Planned Parenthood empire across the world that is spreading death every place, the abortion of children, uh, killing children through contraception. This too is an evil empire. Uh, it doesn't respect God who says, thou shalt not kill. So they're building the Tower of Babel. And in the world then, there are those who are seeking to build the city of God. And we build the city of God by loving our neighbor, by doing good to those who hate us, praying for those who persecute us in every way. So the message James is giving us today then, um, that there is a real danger of, uh, there's a real danger in making the world your friend, that you become the enemy of God by doing that. And it appears to me that so much of religion today is very worldly. Christians should be in the world but not of its spirit and not of its mentality. James now goes on to make an extraordinary statement. He said, surely you don't think scripture is wrong when it says, the spirit which he sent to live in us wants us for himself alone. James says, and so does St. Peter, that the spirit of God has been poured out on all mankind even on unbelievers, and that the Spirit of God dwells in us, 
and that he wants us exclusively for himself alone. Most people would experience the Holy Spirit as the voice of conscience. Take the letter N out of the word conscience and you have the words call science, which means knowledge with. According to this Christian scripture, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within everybody in the face of the earth. We may choose not to cooperate with the Holy Spirit or we may choose to do so. A simple, rather childish example, uh, supposing you're a male like myself and you are uh, walking someplace and in front of you there's a rather attractive female and um, we'll say you are drawn to the outline of her underwear under her clothes. Now, you have an invitation right there. You can uh, watch home movies in your mind and you can get caught up in uh, a, fo a dangerous attraction like lust or you could uh, struggle and say, listen to the Holy Spirit and dismiss these uh, thoughts from your mind. So we all have the Spirit. When the church was founded, um, Peter stood up and when the people heard him talk, there was, um, they accused him of being drunk. And he said, no, we're not drunk. It's just the third hour of the day. The ABC liquor stores are not open yet. He said, these are the days that the prophet Joel talked about where I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Excuse me. <clears throat> your old men will dream dreams and your young men will, will see visions. So he says here that the Spirit of God has been poured out on all of us without exception and that this Spirit wants us exclusively for himself. Isn't that the extraordinary thing? God wants you for himself. God has chosen you before the world began to be holy, to be blameless in his sight and to be full of love. He has predestined you to be his son and daughter uh, from all eternity. But we have to face this awesome truth of human freedom. Now James uh, turns around and says something to the rich and the self-confident. This is James chapter 4 verses 13 through 17. Here is the answer for those of you who talk like this. Today or tomorrow we are off to this or that town. We're going to spend a year there trading and make some money. You never know what will happen tomorrow. You are no more than a mist that is here today for a little while and then disappears. The most you should say is, if it is the Lord's will, we shall still be alive to do this or that. But how proud and sure of yourselves you are now. Pride of this kind is always wicked. Everyone who knows what is the right thing to do and doesn't do it commits a sin. In my own life, uh, people often say to me, I will do such and such and such a thing. And I always say to them, in my mind rather, I say, God willing, you'll be alive to do it. We shouldn't make any kind of arrogant statements about the future. I remember one time standing outside church and this couple came up to me, and I can't explain this to you, but I just will tell it to you. This couple came up to me and they said to me, Father, we're taken off to go up north for about three weeks. Uh, this was Sunday and we're leaving on Wednesday. We'd like your blessing. So I asked the Lord to bless them. 
and to bring them back safe. But all I can tell you is I had the most profound impression on my mind that they weren't going any place. And the following day, which was Monday, uh, the husband of this couple died. So when it comes to the future, there's a need for a certain humility here. Uh, God willing, we'll be alive to do such and such tomorrow. He tells us here, you are no more than a mist which is here today and gone tomorrow. So if you can, at least mentally, when you speak about the future, always add the words, God willing. Uh, Jesus, again, and this uh, passage here is in the Gospel of St. Luke. Again, Luke was a physician. And it's chapter 12, and verses 13 to 21. A man in the crowd said to Jesus, Master, tell my brother to give me a share of our inheritance. My friend, he replied, who appointed me your judge or the arbiter of your claims? Then he said to them, watch and be on your guard against avarice of any kind. For a man's life is not made secure by what he owns, even when he has more than he needs. Then he told them a parable, and this is it. There was once a rich man who, having had a good harvest from his land, thought to himself, What am I to do? I have not enough room to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods in them. And I will say to my soul, My soul, you have plenty of good things laid by for many years to come. Take things easy, eat, drink, and have a good time. But God said to him, You fool, this very night the demand will be made for your soul, and this piled-up riches of yours, whose will it be then? So it is when a man stores up treasure for himself in place of making himself rich in the sight of God. Now James goes on in all, almost in a terrible manner. He says, now an answer for the rich. Start crying. Weep for the miseries that are coming to you. Your wealth is all rotting. Your clothes are all eaten up by moths. All your gold and your silver are corroding away. And the same corrosion will be your own sentence and eat into your body. It was a burning fire that you stored up at your as your treasure for the last days. Laborers mowed your fields and you cheated them. Listen to the wages that you kept back calling out. Realize that the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. On earth you have had had a life of comfort and luxury. In the time of slaughter you went on eating to your heart's content. It was you who condemned the innocent and killed them. They offered you no resistance. You wonder sometimes when these people are in sweatshops or sometimes even in our so-called uh, fashionable restaurants, people working for slave uh, wages. And, and he warns us here, he says, the money that you kept back is calling out and has the call, cry of the poor has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And not alone will our riches corrode, but we ourselves will be corroded in the judgment that is to come. I don't imagine any priests or ministers listening to this last story will particularly care for it, but it's called The Sermon of the Mouse by Charles Arcodia. The day had finally arrived 
Everyone in the congregation was waiting expectantly. The negotiations had taken months, but finally everything had been worked out. It wasn't every congregation in the country that could have an opportunity like this. It was a rare visit from a very well-known celebrity. The pastor and his guest mounted the platform. The first hymn was sung. Then the pastor rose. I'm sure everyone is aware who our guest speaker is this morning, he said. Aware? How could anyone help being aware? There were posters all over town. There was a big yellow and black banner stretched across the entry to the parking lot. Seating in the sanctuary had been assigned on a reservation basis with preferential treatment given to members in good standing. An overflow crowd was watching the service on closed-circuit television. Everyone knew about it. It's, it isn't often, said the pastor, that we have an opportunity to meet someone who has become a legend in his own time. Starting back in the bleak years of the Depression, with a shoestring budget and a very simple plan, our guest, with hard work and contagious enthusiasm, built an empire for himself that rivals that of Howard Hughes. His name is a household word. He is admired by young and old alike, and he has even survived his mentor. He reigns over a multi-million dollar business venture that was so successful in Southern California that he established an even more spectacular venture in Florida. By now, I'm sure you know who I am talking about. We are so honored to have Mickey Mouse with us today to share with us the secrets of Disneyland's success. We hope that our church will be stimulated and helped by his story. A hush came over the congregation as this famous mouse rose to his feet, cleared his throat, and began his sermon. Thank you for inviting me to come to your church. I must admit at first I was surprised that a church would ask me to give a sermon. Oh, I have often been invited to religion class contests where they give each new person a Mickey Mouse hat and expect me to shake hands with everyone and act funny, but a sermon is something new. But after I thought it out, I realized that maybe Disneyland and the church did have a lot in common. As I began to organize my thoughts, I saw how ingenious it was to invite me to share. I really believe that if your church were to apply our principles, you would become as successful as Disneyland. First, make sure your enterprise seems exciting, even dangerous, but be quick to let your people know that there really is no danger involved. Give the illusion of great risk, but make sure everything is perfectly safe. Second, admit that you are in the entertainment business. People won't care what you say as long as they're entertained. Keep your people happy. Don't tell them anything negative, and don't make demands on them. Just keep them diverted from the ugly reality of today's world, and they will keep coming back for more. Third, make everything look religious. Make the religious experience so elaborate, so intricate, so complex, that only the professionals can pull it off, and all the laymen can do is stand around with their mouths open and watch. People would rather watch an imitation mechanical bird sing than a real bird anyway. That would, they would rather watch worship than do it. Fourth and finally, pretend that there are no problems. 
At Disneyland, we dress up our security guards as smiling rabbits or friendly bears because we don't want anyone's experience at Disneyland to be ruined by the sight of law enforcement personnel. Disguise your problems and failures behind a warm smile and a firm handshake. Leave them at home and let the church be a happy place where there aren't any ugly problems. People today want good, clean entertainment. They want an environment that is safe for children, and they want a place that is safe for their family and friends. I am so glad to see that the church is moving in this direction. Thank you, and God bless you. You may not like what you just heard, but isn't it true? Hasn't much of religion today become Mickey Mouse, become Disneyland, all externals? Isn't Harvey Cox right when he says we have inherited a perverted form of Christianity, deodorized and without smell? Well, thank you for listening to Burning Hearts. Shalom. <laughs>